Hey, Anthem, hope you're doing well today. Open up to the book of John chapter 13. If you are in a place where you can read along with me and have your Bible open as you're watching or listening, that will be hugely advantageous to you. Otherwise, I'm happy to read the text over you. We are journeying through the Gospel of John uh, together as a church community, uh, and it has been so fruitful, so enjoyable, so delightful. I hope your time in John has been as rich as mine. I have so loved studying, preparing for these teachings, and talking about them with you, particularly with my house church. That has been so, so beautiful. We are in John chapter 13 together as a church community. And before we read the text, I want to ask you a question. If you knew you had one week to live, what would you do? What would you do? Who would you spend your time with? What might be some of your regrets or your your greatest satisfactions and your greatest joys in life? And to those closest to you, maybe your best friends, your family, your sons, daughters, your spouse, your parents, whatever, to those closest to you, what would you want to communicate in those last few days? I just envision um, maybe a father or a mother passing down those invaluable life lessons about the kind of person they want their kids to become. Or to to maybe parents or older people in their life, maybe communicating uh, the the richness and, and joy and love and value they've received. Where we are at in John chapter 13 is we are in Jesus' last week with his disciples. We've titled this series, Last Words, really John 13 through maybe chapter 17 or so, uh, are are Jesus' last teachings, last words, most likely around a table with his disciples, those who are following him. And it's kind of wedged uh, as he's uh, right after he comes into Jerusalem, the triumphal entry, but also before the the cross, the trial, the, you know, the resurrection, all that's coming next in the narrative. And we have the this long block of teaching from Jesus to his disciples in his last week. And so we might think if Jesus had one week left with his disciples, what are the, some of the most important things to be communicating? Right? The disciples ask questions from time to time, but from now, especially until the end of chapter 16 and chapter 17, is this one big prayer. Jesus is explaining to them the fact that he's going away. He's getting out of here. His time is coming. We saw in the text uh, in uh, the beginning of John chapter 13 that the time is now for the Son of Man to be glorified. And he's showing them what it means for their future life. He says, you're not going to be able to go with me. And so here's what it means for you to continue living your life. He's talking about his own sorrow. He's talking about his own joy and his own mission to the world that his disciples are going to pick up. And this ends with this great chapter of prayer in John chapter 17, which I'm so excited. And then the story picks up with the kind of the arrest, the trial, the time in the garden, the crucifixion, all of that. So what we basically get in John chapters 13 through 17 is Jesus teaching them why he's leaving, like why he's got to go and what he's about to do next, and what they'll do after he's gone. So Really, famous last words, some of the most important things. And for the disciples who are hearing all these warnings from Jesus about his like pending departure, they maybe have ears pricked. What are those kind of final words, those final teaching moments? And so obviously what comes first in that might be the most important thing. And this is how Jesus picks up. 
So John 13, we'll pick it up in verse 31. And we'll go to the end of John chapter 13. Now, just a like narrative note right at the top. In verse 31, it says, when he had gone out, that was Judas. So remember the, the, the rest of John 13, the foot washing. Peter's like, no, 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 don't wash my feet. And Jesus is like, no, I have to. Otherwise, you can't go where I'm going. And he's like, oh, then wash me top to bottom. And Jesus is like, you really don't get what's going on here. We have that whole account. So Jesus is humility and service on display and model for us. But also we have the kind of the Judas moment where he's saying, hey, one of you around this table is about to betray me, right? One of you is about to betray me. And they're like, oh, not me, Jesus. But we know, looking back all these years later, that it was Judas and that he was around the table eating with the other disciples and Jesus. And he was one of the guys who got his feet washed by Jesus, even though Jesus knew what was about to happen. And so in verse 31, the narrative picks up that when Judas has gone out, Jesus said, now the Son of Man, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, he's speaking to his disciples so tenderly. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, which is a callback to John chapter 8, so now also I say to you, where I am going You cannot come. There's a couple of things happening in these first few verses. First, um, you may have got caught up on the word glory or glorified, right? Right in verse 31, verse 32, Jesus uses the word glory like six times right here. And that word glory carries a bunch of weight, uh, partly because sometimes we don't even know how to define it, (laughs) but also because it's all over the Bible. And especially for good first century Jews who were Jesus' disciples, They would have known the Torah, the prophets, and the story of God's people in and out. And they might be immediately thinking of all these palpable image of God's glory, like the glory cloud on the mountain when Moses goes up to Mount Sinai, or the pillar of fire and the cloud leading them through the desert on their wandering journeys, or even in the Holy of Holies, where God's presence was made manifest with them in the tent in the middle of the desert. And when the Israelites needed to be reminded of God's glory, he often appeared to them and revealed his character, his attributes, his identity in a bright light or a cloud. But how does God appear to man and woman, humankind, in the New Testament? How is God's excellence displayed in visible form? And the answer that really Paul unpacks for us in these theological ways in Colossians chapter 1, is through Jesus. Jesus is the glory of God. He is the manifestation of God's excellence. And because he himself is God, he perfectly reveals the excellent character of God. He is, to use Paul's language in Colossians 1, the exact imprint of God's perfect and holy nature. But Jesus also says the path to this kind of glory, the path to this glorification of the Son of Man, to use Jesus' language, is a solo journey. And he says, you can't go where I am going. And we know he's talking about the cross. They've been following Jesus for every minute of every day for the last three years. Put yourself in their shoes. And suddenly Jesus is saying, you can't come with me now. They've been wandering around with this homeless, itinerant, rabbi, miracle worker, prophet, and suddenly now they can't go where he's going? He called them to leave their homes, their jobs, their families, and this, here in Jerusalem, 
At the Passover, this is where the road's ending? Think about how earth-shattering this might have felt to the disciples. Think about how disruptive this would have felt to the disciples. But we know he's not leaving them forever. And he's not saying, hey guys, I'm going to heaven and you guys can't come. Not good enough. That's not what he is getting at here. What he is saying is, I'm about to go to the cross and only I can accomplish what needs to happen next. He has to do it for us. He had to do it for them. And as Jesus prepares his disciples for that departure, he starts with, arguably, the most important thing to know and practice and to live out. Remember, final words. What are the first piece of final words that Jesus is giving us? I'm going, you can't come. This is the path to the glory of God, the glorification of the Son of Man and God's glory found in him. So this is what I want you to do, Jesus says. Verse 34, love one another. He says, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Jesus says, hey, I'm, I'm about to go get glorified here. You can't come with me. I'm going to the cross. I alone can do what needs to be done next. You can't follow me yet. So this is what I want you to do in my absence. Love one another. Now, a couple of things we have to ask right off the bat, because love is all over the Bible. What is this new commandment? Why does Jesus say a new commandment I give you? Because we can go back to the book of Leviticus and find love one another all over the place. Love is a motif woven throughout all of scripture. So what's new about this commandment? I think there are two things that are new about this commandment here that are different from the myriad of times that Moses, God, the prophets in the Old Testament, and Jesus, even so far in his teaching, has talked about loving others all the time. What's new here? is Jesus' command to love one another as Jesus has loved us. This is new. Because Jesus is about to go into the fullest expression of his love for us, which is the cross. This is the new commandment, to love people like Jesus has loved you. But that's not the only part that's new. The other part is that this this love for one another will form a new visible community. By this Christ-like love for one another, all people will know who we are. Jesus is giving us an answer to an important question. How will people know you're my disciple? Now, this is an important question because when Jesus was on earth, how did people know who Jesus' disciples were? Well, it's just you look at the dusty men and women who are following Jesus, right? You just look at the people who are listening to their teachings and kind of practicing the things that Jesus gave them to practice. Literally, the people who were just around Jesus the most were probably his disciples. That's how you knew. Now, how will people know you're a disciple of Jesus once Jesus has left us in his physical presence? And Jesus says it's by the quality of our love for each other. And Jesus defines this kind of love a bit for us. And, and partly we can understand the kind of love Jesus is getting at by the, the Greek language behind uh, the writing that is happening here. We have to remember there are all sorts of 
types of love, right? Like, Jesus is saying, love others like I have loved you. And somehow in the English language, that also can translate to, I love coffee, or I love the Giants, or I love going surfing. Those are obviously not the same kinds of words here. So it's helpful to unpack the kind of word Jesus uses, which in the Greek is this version, this form of love called agape love, which we all know from stitch pillows, but maybe we don't actually know what it actually means. An agape love is like a self-sacrificial, unconditional love. Like there's nothing you need to do to earn this love, but there's lots of things I will do to demonstrate this kind of love, and all of them include the giving or the dying to myself. So this is Jesus' love towards you and me, but this is also the love of God to send his son in the first place to earth to intercede into humanity. In John chapter 3, verse 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That word love is the exact same form and version of the word love that Jesus talks about in John chapter 13. The self-giving, generous kind of love. And Jesus says this is the kind of love you are to have for each other. Remember, the setting. You can even think of your house church as like a very like familiar setting to what would have been happening here. Big feast around the table. Jesus and his disciples are reclining at table. And Jesus is sharing these last words. He just watched their feet. Super kind of intimate moment. And he's saying, the way I have loved you, and we can think both of the feet washing from earlier in chapter 13, but also the cross to come, this way that I have loved you, this is how you are to love one another. But this love is not just like a private kind of deal. This kind of love exposes you. It's, it's a love that should tell others around you, man, this guy, this gal, they must follow Jesus because of how they love. This seems like a huge deal. It's a new commandment because we're supposed to love in the way that Christ has loved us. And it's also going to form this new visible community. And it's a specific kind of self-sacrificing love that will form this new visible community that has to expose us for who we are, followers of Jesus. But oftentimes, uh, like kids when you're trying to make an important point, they bypass the main deal, landmark command, and they get back to a question they had earlier that Jesus didn't really answer. So Peter, in verse 36, not asking about this momentous kind of love commandment, goes, uh, Lord, where are you going? <laughs> I can just imagine Jesus in that moment going like, were you not listening to anything I just said? <laughs> I just had this manifesto of what it means to love and, and how I'm going to die for you. And that's the kind of love I want you to have for each other. And that kind of love is actually going to reveal to the whole world that you follow me and not anybody else. And, and Peter goes like, Wait a second, but where are you going? So he says, where are you going? And Jesus answered him. He says, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me afterwards. There's a glimmer of hope there. Because what he said to the Jews in John chapter 8 is, where I'm going, you can't follow me. And they all had kind of these weird misconceptions about what he meant. Is he going to kill himself? Like, what is happening here? But Jesus says to Peter, you'll follow me afterward. We have to think, what's happening afterward? He's going to go, and then maybe people can follow him. 
Once again, we know the narrative, so we can look at this and go like, oh, he's going to the cross, and then he's going to call people to himself after his resurrection. But Peter, not knowing all the narrative yet, said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. So Jesus says, not only can you not follow me, because you're not ready to handle this kind of love and sacrifice yet. Because you may say you're ready to die for me, but when the time comes and you're confronted, you're going to deny that you even know me. And of course, we know that from the account to come. But Jesus says, you can't follow me now, but you will. And this can be taken in maybe two ways, theologically, and I don't think they're mutually exclusive. I think both can be happening here. Uh, One of the ways is that Peter won't go to the cross now. Jesus has to, but actually Peter will later. In fact, he'll be crucified upside down as a martyr. So it could be a hyper-specific, like, prophetic moment to Peter. It also could be that Jesus is going to the cross to prepare a way for us to follow him after the cross and the resurrection. Both are true in this instance. It's one of those like double entendre prophecy moments where Jesus is speaking to Peter and says, you can't follow me now, but you will be following me later, i.e. martyrdom. But he's also speaking to all of us who are reading this later, saying that you can follow me after I go through the cross and the resurrection. This is how I'm making it possible for you to be a part of this new kingdom family. So we can read this as Jesus deflating Peter, again, a little bit. But I actually read this as a kind of a momentous love moment from Jesus to Peter and even to you and me. That he did something we could never do to make life possible with him. Which, if we think about it, is the gospel. This passage and this interaction between Jesus and Peter is at the very heart of the gospel. And as Jesus starts in on his last and even longest teaching that we have, we can't help but notice a few of these things. That it's his work on the cross that will glorify the Son of Man and make our lives with him possible. It all starts with Christ's work. This is fundamentally a piece of the gospel, that Christ has moved towards us, enabling us to move towards him. This is the gospel. And Paul even picks this up in his beautiful little like one-sentence summary of the gospel in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 through 5. And he says, For I delivered to you of first importance what I also received. Here we go. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. But look at verse 5 here. Sometimes we just skip that and we're like, yeah, that's the one-sentence gospel, but I think it's so fascinating that Paul calls this out in verse 5. And that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelfth. Who is Cephas? It's Peter. Paul includes this little moment. And I don't don't know if it was a direct callback to this moment in the upper room, but I see the hyperlink there. That Jesus and Peter are interacting on this whole cross-resurrection, kind of future-coming stuff together. And that part of Paul's one-tenth summary of the gospel is that he not only died for sins, he not only buried and was raised on the third day, all in accordance with the scriptures, all in accordance with the prophecies to come, and that he appeared to Peter and the rest of the twelve. The gospel is the good news of God taking on flesh through the person of Jesus Christ and rescuing mankind by his perfect life that we could never live, his substitutionary death that we deserved, and the resurrection that now gives us true life through his spirit. 
There's John 1, the Word was at the beginning, the Word became flesh, dwelt among us. It's John 3, 16, that God so loved, so agape the world that he sent his own Son. And it's Jesus saying, where I'm going, you cannot come because only I can accomplish what needs to happen so that you can have true life with me through my resurrection. The outflow of Christ's work is the main beat of what Jesus is talking about here. Like a love for one another that not only mirrors and looks like Christ's love, but it, it shows the world that we are his disciples. It's a marking moment. And John summarizes this motif and this idea in a follow-up letter in 1 John chapter 4, verse 19. John simply says, we love because he first loved us. One of the shortest verses out there. It's a great one to memorize, by the way. 1 John 4, 19. We love because he first loved us. This is what Jesus is getting at. This text in John 13, where we have the most fundamental, basic, and largest momentous command to love one another in a way that mirrors Christ's love for us and shows the world that we follow Christ, is rooted in the very gospel, that only Jesus can do what needed to be done to bring life for you and for me. And that's it. This is seven verses. The gospel and the natural outflow of the gospel towards you is love for one another. Now, as we think about how to put this into practice, uh, where do we go from here? What are some practical ways uh, to actually walk out what we're, what we're seeing here? And even just to ask yourself the question, if this is really true, how does this change how we live? The gospel is true. If this love commandment is true, how does it change the way how, how does it change the way that we live? What's one practical way um, that we can love in a way that looks like Jesus' love towards us and love in a way that demonstrates to other people we are Jesus' disciples? Now, for me, I, maybe this is just low-hanging fruit, but I think this is exactly what our mission allowance is for in our house churches. I think it's a, it's a way to love self-sacrificially. Uh, and because not only we're sacrificing a part of our church budget for mission allowance, but also in the mission allowance, there are frequently opportunities for you to pile on top of that to bless somebody, somebody else. So it's a way we can love in this agape kind of way, expecting nothing in return, no reciprocity, no payback, no accolades, but just simply giving and blessing. But it's also a way that it like, it marks you out as tangibly someone who follows a different ethos in the world around us. And it is an opportunity for us to say, we are loving you in this way, in a tangible way, because we follow Jesus. This is exactly what the mission allowance is for. So maybe the, the best practical next step is how might you and your missional, in your house church use your mission allowance this month to tangibly love in a way that reflects Christ's love towards us and shows and demonstrates to other people that we are Jesus' disciples. I think that is the best possible next step for us as a community, is in our house churches, how can our mission allowance accomplish this kind of love? Because the gospel has already come to us, and now it is going through us. Let me pray for you. 
Jesus, thank you so much for our church family. Thank you so much for this opportunity for me to open the text with them and for them in their cars, in their homes, uh, I don't know, at work on a lunch break to engage with the scriptures and to consider how this changes how we live. We ask for the empowerment of your Holy Spirit for us to be creative, obedient, and bold as we consider how to love others in the way that you've loved us and love each other in a way that shows the world not only who you are, but that we follow you. And so I just pray for beautiful opportunities to share the gospel, not only in speech, but also in action. We pray all of this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. All right, Anthem, thanks for joining me through John 13. Our next video together will be in John chapter 14, where Jesus is talking about the Holy Spirit. Buckle up. It's going to be a fun couple of videos in John 14. Can't wait to see you soon. Have a great day.